This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we are joined once again by Constance as we continue our close reading of Critique of the Gotha Program. Apparently, the very first like uh, person who actually set out a systematic system of like quote unquote national socialism end quote was Frederick Nauman, and he in his uh, catechism, where um, not only does he advocate the um, the you know a labor state, but he also uh, does basically say that like labor is a source of all wealth and culture too, and he does it in like eighteen ninety something. And Frederick Nauman uh, is interesting because um, later on, the ideologists of um, quote unquote like war socialism, who try to like paint the like German war economy as like a step towards socialism, basically were kind of appropriating his arguments. From what I read, Nauman would read like, for example, uh, Johann Plenge. Plenge was even talking about the Volksgemeinschaft already then. And Nauman saw in the, the elaboration of, of this sort of like communal, like war economy, the um, practical conclusion of like not only what he had been advocating for all this time, but also he has like a really interesting comment about uh, how it's also this a sort of like state socialism being a culmination of like uh, a di- so, sort of like dialectical uh, twist on the, what happened at the Gaffa Unity Congress. Just uh, define the Volksgemeinschaft uh, just for a moment. Oh God! Wait, wait I. Okay. I, 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 I'm, wait, wait, no, I, I will pull. I will pull it up. So yeah, the, this because it's an important concept, and I, I don't, yeah, it's one of those times where learning yeah. the language helps, and yeah. I, I didn't do that shit. So why don't you go ahead? And this also ties into like the idea of like 1914, which is tied into the conservative uh, revolutionary stuff. Like, for example, like for Plenge, uh, I'm just going to quote from a paper that's uh, by um, Asaf Kadar that's like National national Socialism Before Nazism from Frederick Nauman to the Ideas of 1914. Plenge had, even before 1914, called it national organ- organizational so- socialism that would submit to the nation's social and economic life to centralized state administration. But the existential war experience seems to have lifted Plenge's confidence in the prospect of, the, of a national socialism to new, to new heights. According to Plenge, the war economy consisting inter alia in the firm centralization of all the forces of the national productive organism constitutes the first socialist society that has become a real, reality. Under the exigencies of the war, the socialist idea broke its way into German economic life its organization coalesced in, in, in a new spirit, and thus the self-determination of our nation gave birth for human gave birth for humanity the new idea of 1914, the idea of a German organization, the people's co-fraternity of national socialism. Die Volksgemeinschaft, 
Okay, actually, he doesn't use Volkska Mineshaft here, but I know he uses it in in another text. Dice Volkska Shaft the socializeness. Frederick Nauman, too, seems to have felt more confident to use the term National Socialism again after more than a decade of repressing it following the collapse of the National Social Association and his party political migration to left liberalism. In his 1916 book, Middle Europa, one of the most widely read wartime books in Germany and beyond, Nauman observes that there grows up from all sides a state or national socialism. There grows up the administered national economy. This passage may be read, I submit, as Nauman's confirmation of the wartime political economy is, in a sense, a fulfillment of his old national socialist vision. What's the difference between Volksgemeinschaft? I don't know if Meinschaft was in there. I might have just threw it in there. And the other one? One that was just in this quote. I just Googled it, and it's not Volksgemeinschaft, but it's still within uh, the purview of uh, the Volkish movement. So it's not it's it's not a, it's yeah. not both the mind check exactly, but I, I know that like French yeah. also uses it and others uh, use it. Yeah, because a uh, Volk is is people, but it's the ethnic term for people. It's not like the more common, or it's not the more you know yeah. uh, generically populist version. Well, and he, here it is. So, for example, like Nauman in his national in his National Social Catechism of 1897, Nauman argues as follows. Point 135, what kind of state should Germany become? Answer, a labor state. What does that mean? The national income should belong first and foremost to labor. To whom does it belong now? Almost half of it belongs to interest and rent. The two pivotal national productivist features appear in this short passage. First, labor is elevated here to the status status of defining attribute of the future German state. Elsewhere, Nauman bolsters this position by exalting labor as the foundation of all life and culture. (laughs) And then he goes on and like his program like is all petty bourgeois too. And it's sort of like, you know, and all those like class differences. And when I read him, it kind of like reads as like the sort of like left liberal equivalent of like maybe the Strasser programs. <laughs> well, I, I kind of have some sympathy for this, you know, whole line of argument, because if you're doing just if like a, if you're kind of inheriting bourgeois political economy, and then trying to create some kind of oppositional literature. Oh, yeah. This is obvious place to take it, right? Like, oh, yeah. and, okay. and, 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 and Nauman, Nauman read Babel, Liebnik, Marx, and Engels, if I remember correctly. And he's also the one that the Heidegger like cites as like, a, you know, when I was like, I was confused about politics with like 20 different parties, but I was like, you know, it would be good. It would be like something like uh, Nauman's attempt at a national, national socialism. <laughs> then he joins the fucking Nazi party, which yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Which is, but the, the interesting thing is, is that Nauman was, you know, he was like, a, as you said, like a sort of like performance, like left liberal, but also he was, he was an imperialist. Basically his dream was of an imperialist labor state. Right. And um, we do have testimony of like one of uh, LaSalle's uh, former um, associates where he just outright says that like, uh, this is something else I can pull up. Wait. Well, you could see how like somebody would come to that conclusion, right? Yeah. Mm. It's like, okay, you, you know, do, a politics exists within the nexus of like nation states. So if like the workers are to take power, it'll be in the context of this nation state. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, you're, you're you're basically existing in a world of inter-imperialist rivalry. So, you know, the way to probably most likely resolve that, or, you know, the way this guy sees it is, well, we'll just become the number one imperialist power and we'll just enforce, like, labor state values on everybody, you know, mm-hmm. at the barrel of a gun. Yeah, and I mean, I, yeah, so, okay, so the citation now is, uh, is the name of the guy is Val, Valtai, who I think dies in, like, Chicago, despite being like one of the founding members of the ADAV who like later defend, defected to the Eisenachers. Yeah. So his actual quote, you know, from his testimony of a book that's like, I don't think it's been translated, but I'm going to have to look into that. So his quote is the dictatorship or what we call imperialism today was by no means a temporary nece- necessity for LaSalle, but it was the basis of his idea of the state. And I must say like people at the time did not have the, like the letters where, uh, LaSalle basically like comes out and like invents like uh his his own like he the early my, my, alliance. Yeah, we proposes the social monarchy of the people. And I only recently found out that his idea of uh, you know the monarchy of the people it was inspired from like seeing people, uh, ordinary workers that try to appeal to the king. So he was being pragmatic there. Uh well, yeah, because he's looking basically for some sort of like force that can supersede and discipline the market, right? But doesn't believe enough in like the working class's capacity to do that. So it's like, yeah, you ain't look for like a banana yeah, dictatorship. Um, and apparently, his turn to like Bismarck was because the ADAV was not like did not have like a spectacular rise like he hoped so, and then his connect his attempt at like you know working out something with Bismarck was originated in the fact that he was his organization wasn't getting uh, as popular as fast enough that he wanted and the the re- the reason he was able to like uh easily get in contact with Bismarck was because uh of his uh, ties to like uh, Countess Hatsfield or whatever her name is the the, the lady that um, right a series the- of lawsuits that built his career basically yeah uh, well, I, don't, I really don't think the incentive structures have changed that much, even though every, virtually everything it's, has. Uh, it's it's pretty funny, though, because uh, b- b- from what I've read of, like, the biography that I've been able to, like, get a hold of, like, he basically was, like, LaSalle was, like, notoriously, like, promiscuous. But the thing is, he would, basically, basically she was into it, and he would tell him, like, right. he would, yeah, yeah, so he, he basically had, like, a... Uh, sure, basically had sort of a sugar mommy, so that's a that's a W for him. But then he, you know as, as far as the personal life of socialists go, yeah, a rare rare W. Also, he did he did defend the uh, Schweitzer when he was like, uh, you yeah, know, he, he he was like condemned yeah. for like homosexuality, and he basically did the his best uh, Pierre Trudeau impression, where it was like, no, it's a, it's the privacy of the bedroom. It's, it's not my concern. Boom. Another interesting thing is is that Schweitzer apparently was the first one to coin democratic centralism. And Schweitzer was probably like he gave it that name, but it will probably refer back to like a LaSalle speech that basically had the concept of democratic centralism without saying it so. And then it was imported by Mensheviks into like uh, Russia and then both Bolsheviks and Mensheviks kind of adopted it. Yeah, really hoisted by their own petard there, Mensheviks. All right. Mm-hmm. Um I think we should get to the critique. Yeah, okay. So that's just to say that, uh, you know, just to put a little context, like this stuff can actually end up mattering 
in like conceptions <laughs> right yeah i think there was some recent youtube jibber jabber um bread tube whatever about like some very basic points in marxist economics that are you know different from liberal that's different from liberal economics different from like other schools of economics and people ask essentially why the fuck does this kind of thing matter um and i think a lot of times when you get into the nuances of some of this like scripture it feels like it can't possibly have any fucking meaningful impact on anything. Mm, and uh, and ve- very few things actually do, I think. But when it comes to Marx and the details of socialism, you know, the details of the political economy of socialism, yeah, you make uh, some mistakes in your axioms and, you know, uh, a few moves later, you are moving in a fasci direction. And, um, and you, you, know, you, don't have, you don't have to have fascist intentions to begin that journey at all. In fact, you could just be combative towards the um, bourgeois liberals that, you know, want to exploit people. Yeah. And also, I mean, there's the political dimension that, you know, explained it, like, how the fuck did this, the first, like, guy who, like, posited the first system of, like, coherent, like, national socialism could have, like, almost, like, the same take as uh, in the got like the draft gospel program that matters but also it does matter especially if you look at like the ecological side as we're going to see that positing labor as this be all end all without nature being an integral part of it does it does matter in conceptualizing Mm. there's also there's also like the issue i think if i remember correctly where like the the difference between like the emancipation of labor versus like the emancipation of the working class. I think one of the critiques of like the emancipation of labor is that basically capitalism is the emancipation of labor. So being a socialist wanting the emancipation of labor is misunderstanding the, the point because capitalism is this, like you give independence to labor, but you're, you're dispossessed of the means of production because of primitive accumulation. So I will say I may have been a little diminishing of the uh, ideological aspect being the determinate trajectory of like the S day. And actually, I, I actually do agree that this stuff matters, but I feel like I don't know. I feel like there's like a bit of a base superstructure aspect to this, mm-hmm. where yeah, there yeah, yeah. are organizational problems that the S day face that could have happened to any organization, mm-hmm. regardless of its ideology. You know, even if it wasn't founded by a you know anti-Semitic poly ambulance chaser <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like you have to keep in mind that like let's all ended up like getting killed in a duel with like some romanian guy and then the romanian yeah. guy died like afterwards too of like some random disease and he was chasing after like some girl <laughs> it's like yeah it's a it's, it's it's so funny that like this guy like haunts us to this very day yeah <laughs> he was a socialist for like nine months like, I mean, right? I mean just have the juice, you well. know. Some people just have the have the have the charisma, you know. Yeah, I yeah. mean, one of his associates like ended up like defecting to like Bismarck. Like the way he was, he was like talking uh, about like what he was gonna do in like Germany is like you know some agitation, drawing attention to himself. In the Bismarck biography, where this is kind of detailed, the author kind of like talks about it as if they were like doing. Um, they basically had a think tank to like work through the implications of like what would happen in Germany as it industrialized. And yeah, <laughs> that's the, uh, yep. Wow. That's even the origins of the right wing Marxist think tank. 
you know, specters of uh, platypus and what or spikes and all that <laughs> shit. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of disturbed how much of the you know what I would consider you know maybe the right far right of the uh, socialist political spectrum whatever you know has been there from day one, and um, and yeah I don't know as I was getting up before like you can you know just be like a very like scientifically minded like social sciences person and walk up to economics and you know just from just from the normal definitions of things kind of walk into something like this, which doesn't feel remotely fashy at first. You're trying to, you know, get, you know, justice in a manner of speaking for people being exploited. It seems like you're rooting for the underdog. How could that go wrong? How could it get weird? This is how it gets weird. (laughs) So, um, section one, labor is the source of all wealth and all culture. And since useful labor is possible only in society and through society, the proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. First part of the paragraph, quote, labor is the source of all wealth and all culture. Labor is not the source of all wealth. Nature is just as much the source of use values. And it is surely of such that material wealth consists as labor, which itself is only the manifestation of a force of nature, human labor power. The above phrase is to be found in all children's primers and is correct insofar as it is implied that labor is performed with the pertinent objects and instruments. But a socialist program cannot allow such bourgeois phrases to pass over in silence the circumstances that alone give them meaning. Only insofar as the human being from the beginning behaves towards nature, the primary source of all objects and instruments of labor, as an owner, treats her as belonging to him. His labor becomes the source of use values, therefore also of wealth. I just want to stop right here. Mm -hmm. First of all, there's a big eco-socialist clusterfuck debate mm-hmm. about whether um, as long as workers vote on it, it's okay if we turn the earth into a sun or, you know, maybe we should try to acknowledge the limits of the planet, you know, which are ideologically reflected in the limits of, you know, bourgeois political economy, which doesn't acknowledge limits. And just the basic point of labor not being the source of all wealth, but, you know, la- labor... Using this uh, patriarchal metaphor in tandem, you know, let's say this, this I think has a sort of dominionist kind of Christian vibe, actually, uh, when it comes to labor and wealth, uh, you know, uh, natural wealth from the earth. Putting that aside for a moment, uh, there is a relationship between labor and the planet. Mm -hmm. That's the fundamental, you know, metabolic equilibrium, whatever. Yeah, and this this authority in like volume one, like you you will like uh, run in some considerations on that. He he doesn't Marx doesn't elaborate that much, but also now that we have his um, all his papers, we can see that he was thinking about this a lot, and it didn't matter to him. And it makes sense in the sense that like um, if the entire like metabolism between like nature and labor is mediated through um, 
the ability for not only labor power to appear as a commodity, but as a commodity that like you can buy and sell and then direct without like anybody knowing why they're doing anything they're doing at all. This kind of this sort of like disconnect kind of essential in being um and in, in not thinking about the consequences. And maybe a little context to what like Esri alluded to. So Recently, there has been this effort um, by a number of scholars, most recently Saito, to sort of reconstruct from Marx's like very late writings and notes a major ecological component to his overall critique of political economy, right? Sort of arguing that there, there's this theory of metabolism that he was developing that was never really finished, um, but was nonetheless like integral to his, his understanding of capitalist and even socialist society as a whole, right? And so in some ways... I think that project, it's very much an open question over to what extent that's like an accurate reading of of that material, but also to what extent that viewpoint can be reconstructed and so forth. Um, mm. and, but people do point to this section and this passage as him, as evidence that uh, Marx was attempting to develop this broader theory of metabolism that would serve sort of as a corrective to the more uh, labor-centric reading of his critique of political economy that you might get from reading capital one right like one thing one thing that bothered marx is that you know lasalle cribbed pretty liberally from his published thoughts and if you looked at marx's published thoughts on this stuff up until that time yeah you would get like this very like labor first view of everything Uh, and if we take this passage seriously we see that's really not the case and that the relationship between human beings and nature is mediated through labor. But what's I think implicit here is that the joint ownership or stewardship of nature by humanity as a whole is also an important component here that needs to be considered. And this is also um, one of the reasons that uh, he nuances opinions about um, the Russian commune, right? Because I think in the first edition of like uh, the, the first edition of capital, he had like dismissive remarks about um Person, if I remember correctly, you know, linking him to like, oh, he found uh, communism through the reports of uh, a Prussian like minister, like Haxhausen. But later on, he took that out, and even in his postface, he like praises uh, Chernyshevsky's uh, notes on J.S. Mill, and he even um, and this ties into into this too because Marx learned Russian, and one of the things he did. You know, to, to test out his knowledge was read read Bakunin Bakunin's like invective against them, and one of the reasons that the uh, Marx got so mad, got like so annoyed by Leibniz, um, you know, Leibniz didn't didn't tell even Babel about like a unification that he was uh, going to do with the Lasallians, and one of the reasons that um, Marx was so was so pissed off is because the ADAV had like helped the. Uh, Bakuninists like spread the libel about about him, <laughs> and also the 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 very points that um, that Marx knew that the anarchists would throw back at him were in the the draft program and points that he he did not disagree with the anarchists about, which is why he found it to be like a regression. Well, yeah, and I think like the 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 thing with the Russian commune stuff as well was basically the argument is he was looking. What he was really trying to understand there was not so much – well, part of it was an alternative path to socialism, but but another big part was by looking at, like, these Russian communes and, like, other 
anthropological stuff around like indigenous like relationships mm-hmm. with nature. He was trying mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. how it is you could develop a balanced relationship with yep. the world around you, right? That's why he says the robbery, agriculture, and all that stuff. And it was all basically, it was all it wasn't him just like spinning his wheels because he was you right. know bored or felt like the whole thing was fucked. He was actually trying to complete the work that he was that he was tasked with. But Ingalls was you know, pissed at him because it seemed like he was just you know engaging in um, engaging in pedantry or whatever, you know. Which is the attitude that people have towards this to this day, actually. Like, it's kind of... I had this attitude, honestly, until I, like, no. started reading, like, some of these arguments, you know. I, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, most of the body of um, highfalutin critical theory, uh, you know, there's a few concepts that are super important, really, really vital stuff. But not everything is. And, like, uh, you have to, I don't know, growing up, you have to sort through a lot of different stuff to get to this. I kind of have sympathy for people who have this viewpoint. You know, it's not, it's not totally stupid. It's just like, I don't know. The real world has some weird nuances, and uh, well, you're bound I, to get make the same mistakes as other people if you don't like trace out how these how, how these can pan out. I think part of it is kind of for the same reason that liberal economists or others will dismiss Marx's catastrophism with regards to like, okay, there's this contradiction between the bourgeoisie and proletariat and it's going to result in this major eruption and sweep all this crap away. His interest in robbery agriculture, like the the more catastrophic pr- predictions uh, of the people writing about this at the time didn't take place because capitalism kept innovating solutions that would bas- that basically push the problem off until later, right? <laughs> and so yeah. the there's a more uh, sophisticated, like nuanced view o- over how like capitalism is able to essentially manage these problems. It's sort of like, uh, you know, basically, oh, we got a, we got a bunch of rats in the city. Okay, well, we'll bring in a mil- uh, thousand cats. Okay, well, now we got all these cats. Okay, we'll bring in a thousand dogs. You know, a thousand <laughs> dogs. We'll bring in, you know, we'll bring a thousand tigers. You know, like <laughs> for Marx, the thing about the opcina or other forms of like you know communal uh, arrangement is the fact that like not like the atomization that he um, linked to capitalism hadn't fully taken place. It was in the process, but because it wasn't that process of disintegration, a social revolution could have just, you know, not only stopped it, but also been able to like piggyback off of it. So the, the fact that there's not this distinction as like, oh, our labor powers are all separate. They're not pooled together. The resources um, of our community aren't like pooled to, together. He liked the fact that the, these old like communes still had the impulse of this of like collectively, you know, ma- man- collective management. Right. There's like a pr- there's like a strongly existing pre existing moral economy and habitus in place that you would then just maybe have to. Super, you'd basically have to introduce, you know, like modern agricultural mm-hmm. techniques and, you know, science and like education and literacy and so forth. Yeah, and tools. And there's, if I remember correct, in one of the chapters discussing, you know, agriculture and the, the Bolsheviks, it's mentioned that even after like the, revolu- the revolution, the peasants had like this, uh, this sort of like egalitarian um, impulse where they, they, they would help people that, um, had like bad luck and bad harvest and like you wouldn't let them die and they the issue the issue being that since it was sort of like an economy that more or less produced for subsistence among amongst the member and like the, the NEP was the kind of designed to like not only was it maintaining that but also want to like incentivize 
being able to like get sur- surplus out of them to feed the cities. But the the problem was is that it was kind of a drain on the entire project of industrialization. And the guy who kind of like decided to break uh, that sort of uh, you know that impasse was Stalin, right? right. Which yeah, well, you know, it's not it's not just the uh, right wing kind of national socialism that we're thinking about here. Like the reason I guess where I'm obsessed with this little impasse, this little nook, is that you see this get recreated on the left as well by the figures of the left, like Stalin. You know, and I, I know it's more complicated today, but you know, for decades and decades. Stalin was the guy during like the struggles uh, with like one of his uh, the papers he still directed imputed on Stalin that he was making Lenin uh, the third edition of uh, Russian National Socialist Revolution <laughs> uh, the kind of thing it's like yeah, yeah. all this all this is to say these things ended up mattering yep all right so we packed a lot of commentary in here I think it's all good commentary but we've haven't uh, exactly gotten. F- through the first paragraph, so let's let yeah, do that. let's let's continue Zeno's uh, read through of Gothic critique. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the bourgeois have very good reason, very good grounds for falsely ascribing supernatural creative power to labor, since it follows precisely from labor's dependence on nature that workers with no other property than their labor power must, in all conditions of society and culture be the slave of other human beings who have made themselves the owners of the material conditions of labor. He can only work by their permission and hence only live with their permission. Let us now leave the sentence as it stands or rather limps. What could one have expected in conclusion? Obviously this, quote, since labor is the source of all wealth, No one in society can appropriate wealth except as the product of labor. Therefore, if he himself does not work, he lives by the labor of others and also acquires his culture at the expense of the labor of others. Instead of this, by means of the verbal river, quote, and since, a proposition is added in order to draw a conclusion from this proposition and not from the first one. Yeah, that's an interesting logical point. It's actually just a straight up logical point. Because work, like, when he says he can only work by their permission and hence only live by their permission, that expresses uh, one of the, like, big contradictions of capitalism is the fact that even if you want to labor or learn how to do productive labor, you, you, you can't just, like, you can't just do that, right? You have to, you, you have to, like, have this interaction with the means of production and the null you know, the knowledge and sort of the skills you have to learn, that has to be mediated by by money and the fact that, like, you don't control your own labor power. You're going to have to, like, work in the way that your boss tells you to. Right, yeah, basically, the free exchange of a labor power allows, on, like, a market, allows the capitalists to pretend, like, by owning or having dominion over, you know, these instruments of production and these, you know, the means of production that they don't, that doesn't give them tremendous power, right? Like they're just individuals on the market like you or me or anybody, when obviously that like simply isn't true. And what's interesting here is the critique of, you know, the, the, the separation of the, um, of the producers from the means of production and how this is, uh, me, this is mediated by 
by money exchange, you know, for wage. The bourgeois, because of this, ascribes to labor the supernatural creative power, because only through labor can his means of production turn out not only value, but surplus value and a profit. I mean, at least when they were more honest, they did it. Now, you know, they they sort of deny this. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, you need a job. You know, what are you going to do without me? I'm the job creator. I'm the I'm the person who does it. Not yeah. thinking well, about, like, it, but, you know, if you really <laughs> push, like, uh, the new economics into account, you know, there's just as much of a neoclassical, like, you know, missed opportunity if you just have your fixed capital sitting around, nobody to work at. So yeah. it doesn't substantiate the, you know, the job creator kind of like right-wing inversion of this kind of shit. And they still, as a god. And, and they still like express this by the fact that they want to lower wages by any means necessary. Uh-huh. And sometimes as now they keep trying to like lower wages, even though it kind of like doesn't make sense and they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. Even well, then. I wonder how much of that is just the byproduct of deindustrialization. Mm-hmm. Where it's like the essential production is not here or it's been like extremely automated away. So you have all this surplus labor. So the petty bourgeoisie or anybody is able to essentially appear as this benefactor because through creating these technically like not productive forms of labor, you're essentially getting people access to the surplus value that's produced globally. You know what I mean? So it's it's much more of a, it's, it, it, can, it can appear in a sense like more, almost redistributive in a way. Yeah. There's a sort of sidebar here when um, when people are talking about work and living by the labor of others. I think another thing that separates, you know, genuine, you know, full bong rip communism from whatever kind of fascist social democracy Stalinoid zone is the way in which dependence on a, a wage earner, like family, uh, that kind of thing, are considered, you know, apart from the bourgeoisie, right? Because... In this formulation that Marx is critiquing in the Gotha program, you know, you don't have bourgeoisie or, or the bourgeoisie because they like exploit your labor. What you really have more is somebody doesn't work in this like specific social sense. They're a parasite. Mm-hmm. Right. And that that's like, there's that meme with the two roads, the happy castle with the you know, scary castle. If you're willing to consider the work, like the housework that a dependent, you know, economic dependent on a wage earner does, as work, even if it's not socially recognized in a certain respect by the value form or blah, 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 whatever, you're willing to consider that work. That's like, you know, that's cool communism, right? To a degree. I mean, obviously there has to be room for disability. Marx will actually touch on that later. But yeah, if you don't, oh man, like (laughs) something that started as such like a a good, you know, attempt at a universalist anti-exploitation ethic and the ultimate punching up you know what i mean i don't know i feel like it's like a third rail in socialism how do we feel okay we all know how we feel about those parasites up there what about those you know quotes parasites down there yeah which i just have to say that the this whole notion of parasitical uh existence now nowadays of course a really bad like connotation but if we're being also like kind of charitable, right? Like a parasite, like it doesn't have to be a sort of moral judgment exactly. It's supposed to be sure, it's right. But, 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 but yeah, but also 
that's like there's the conflation between the sort of like the parasite as in this sort of financial speculation that's only just like you using using labor to just try to like trick people into being able to augment his uh his his capital through uh tri- trickery or just you know but i think there is like an instinctual revulsion to like because there are like super predatory forms of exploitation even within mm-hmm. capitalism you know mm-hmm. like what do you say about yeah. somebody who like i don't know uh kicks out like a 70 year who evicts a 78 year old man when he's laid up in the hospital because he got yeah. work. you know what i mean like what do you say about like private equity that basically like finds companies that are like producing like mm. things that are useful for society and, and liquidates them just so they can you know sell the parts for right. scrap you know like what do you what do you say about people like that yeah because at, at that point you know there's always something predatory about exploitation, but there are, you know, depending on what what your position on value is, like, I think it's fair to say that there are some situations where there's some points on the curve where you might get some, you know, return on, you know, working for the employer and stuff. And so there is some kind of mm, facet of cooperation in, in there. But once you get to those extremes of exploitation that even, rev, you know, that even cause revulsion, in an exploitative society, you've really entered another, you know, a different survival strategy where mm. what you're doing is sucking the life from someone else to survive. Like it's and, a much more direct form of predation. Yeah, it it also um, is important also to keep in mind that, like, for the socialist program, it would involve like, you know, direct attack on the on landlords and. One one of the big points is like quote unquote the sort of nationalization of all lands, so it only belongs to the state. So that if we're being charitable here with like having all those lands, all the land in the as property of the state, you can at least like give a better deal because you technically could be you know more about figuring out replacement costs or just you know maintenance costs, and you kind of cut out uh, the ability of. Uh, of landlords and like to just how to put it well it would be part of like you know not 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 having to worry about rent as in oh my my landlord is just like pumping basically like sucking me dry mm-hmm. and it's it has like almost like no uh link to like oh we're putting aside funds in case something breaks I think, yeah, just as a side note, you know, Adam Smith, who, in addition to being the political economy guy, had this very interesting uh, evolutionary theory of ethics, more or less, very much considered landlords as parasites. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Basically, no truck for for the landlord's claims of validity. Yeah, Adam Smith. I've I've seen a lot of memes where it's like an Adam Smith quote about landlords with Mao in the background. It just says, like, pick unrelated, you know. Yeah, well, well, basically, like Adam Smith w- did assert, you know, the primacy of labor. Right. The, the, you know, he's Adam Smith basically was like, um, it's it's the old slogan, "Who does not work, neither shall he eat." It's basically mm-hmm. supposed to be that. Well, but you know, sort of. Yeah, but also there's like again the double side where like it easily can be t- can be turned to other goals. So, uh, yeah, I brought that up as a sort of um, intro to this this part. You know, bring up the gendered aspect of, of labor, work, whatever. And so we talk about this, right? Marx writes this. 
Second part of the paragraph, quote, useful labor is possible only in society and through society. According to the first proposition, labor was the source of all wealth and all culture. Therefore, no society is possible without labor. Now we learn conversely that no useful labor is possible without society. One could just as well have said that only in society can useless and even socially harmful labor become a branch of gainful occupation that only in society can one live by being idle, etc., etc. In short, one could just as well have copied the whole of Rousseau. And what is useful labor? Surely only labor that produces the intended useful result. A savage, and the human being was a savage after he ceased to be an ape, who kills an animal with a stone, who collects fruit, performs useful labor. Thirdly, the conclusion, quote, and because useful labor is possible only in society and through society, the proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. A fine conclusion. If useful labor is possible only in society and through society, the proceeds of labor belong to society and only so much therefrom accrues to the individual worker as is not required to maintain the condition of labor society. In fact, this proposition has at all times been made use of by the champions of the prevailing state of society at any given time. First come the claims of the government and everything that sticks to it, since it is the social organ for the maintenance of the social order. Then come the claims of the various kinds of private property owners, for the various kinds of private property are the foundations of society, etc. One sees that such hollow phrases can be twisted and turned as desired. The second and first parts of the paragraph have some intelligible connection only in the following wording. Quote, labor becomes the source of wealth and culture only as social labor, or what is the same thing, quote, in and through society. This proposition is indisputably correct. For although isolated labor, its material conditions presupposed, can create use value, it can create neither wealth nor culture. But this proposition is equally indisputable. Quote, in proportion as labor develops socially and becomes thereby a source of wealth and culture, poverty and destitution develop among the workers and wealth and culture among the non-workers. This is the law of all history hitherto. What therefore had to be done here instead of generalizing about labor and society was to prove concretely how in contemporary capitalist society, the material, et cetera, conditions have at least been created that enable and compel workers to lift this historical curse. In fact, however, the whole paragraph bungled in style and content is only there in order to inscribe the Lasallian catchword of the undiminished proceeds of labor as a slogan at the top of the party banner. I shall return to the proceeds of labor, equal right, etc., because the same thing recurs in a somewhat different form further on. All right, we got through that. We got through the first part. Yeah, so he touched on something we are talking about a little bit earlier, which is the tricky part is basically determining what part 
of the surplus produced by society has to go back into reinvestment and into you know we, we call welfare programs and so forth and where and does that go where it's supposed to like that's where that's where misappropriation essentially happens that's where historically you know warfare essentially happens over access to that material or con- basically control access to control over uh, any bit of surplus that would be used to fund like a warrior class or you know any, anything else that was above immediately growing labor for subs- uh, growing food for subsistence and so yeah i mean and within that is basically the implicit idea that there would need to be essentially some sort of transparent collective like democratic management of that at a at a society wide level beyond simply I think this is where you get like some of this is like implicit if you take if you like take trade trade unionism and like turn it into like end all be all of your politics where it's like well we'll just give the factory workers everything as much as possible what you re- you'd really be doing is basically giving them essentially a level of social status beyond probably beyond what would be equitable to everybody else right yeah, it would be some pretty adventurous, you know, long-term class interest thinking for them to use that advantage and, you know, spread their, like, their command of their lives, right? Like, Well, I think what, that's kind of what you saw with, like, the family wage, you know. That was, like, the, within, you know, within capitalism, I think that's the closest thing that you get to that where, you know, you're basically a factory worker, you're, you're paid up, you're, you know, your money's good, and that gives you, you know, a great deal of social status within a wider society that doesn't have access to that exact form of labor, you know, and remuneration, you know, so you can have, like, you know, it, it basically allows you to have, like, you know, a trad wife who you have, like, control over. I mean, obviously, there's a bunch of other, like, legal, social things reinforcing that, that lead it down that pathway, but... I think the later passages will have more to say. Yeah, I think think we really pre-chewed a lot of this, so it's all good. Yeah. Baby bird this. All right. Two, quote, in present day society, the instruments of labor are the monopoly of the capitalist class. The resulting dependence of the working class is the cause of all forms of misery and servitude. This sentence, borrowed from the rules of the international, is incorrect in this improved version. In present day society, the instruments of labor are the monopoly of the landowners. The monopoly of land is the very basis of the monopoly of capital and the capitalists. In the passage in question, the rules of the international do not mention either one or the other class of monopolists. They speak of the monopoly of the instruments of labor, that is, the sources of life. Quote, that addition, sources of life, makes it sufficiently clear that land is included in the instruments of labor. The improvement was introduced only because LaSalle, for reasons now generally known, attacked only the capitalist class and not the landowners. In England, the capitalist is usually not even the owner of the land on which his factory stands. For reasons now generally known. Yeah. A, yeah, that's kind of tempting fate because apparently not many people uh, happen to happen to know. But if I remember correctly, um, it was Liebnik, uh, one Liebnik, that kind of alerted Marx to the fact that LaSalle was consorting with, with Bismarck. Yeah, I think I'm going to work uh, for reasons now generally known into my lexicon more. <laughs> now, I hear your historical warning about hubris, but I raise you. 
you know, yeah. the, uh, the erudition but, of dropping that in a normal conversation. I guess it was generally known maybe among the like four or five people that this uh, letter was circulating to <laughs> because they kind of knew each other and like it was hard for them to ignore the fact that the actually existing like Lasallian organizations had a penchant for um, being buddy buddy with with Bismarck. But yes, it's kind of interesting here that it's, um, it's when Marxists like talk about only two classes even though Marx was talking about three from the very beginning, at the very least. Right. People still get tripped up on this. Points again to the anti-bourgeois front, essentially, as the the heart of the right-wing socialist strategy. It's not necessarily actually anti-bourgeois, like like it really was when you had an older ruling class, but it, it maintains this ends against the middle structure. Yeah, well, it's funny now, like people who try to do, the, to do this now, where it's like... you. Like, you can't really even get, like, an anti-bourgeois front. The most you can get is, like, like a petty bourgeois against, like, mm-hmm. uh, like high finance well, or whatever. Where it's, you know, it's, you, it's, you, a, it's mm-hmm. a united front of, like, car dealership owners, yes. uh, you know, Catholics. Uh, and, 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 of national capital, okay? Yeah, and, of yeah. national I mean, capital against, you know, this perceived more globalized forum, right? Yeah, and this is, uh, by, by the way, this, this was... One of the big, like one of the, the sort of like forgotten, like Nazi cranks, economic Nazi cranks, Federer, basically, he, he brought this like its inevitable conclusion where he was basically arguing for a patriotic united front of like, you know, the national like producing capital against, you know, greedy finance capital. And he, he did it for, like, reasons where, like, you, you read what he has to say about interests and rent or whatever. And then you look at, like, what Marx was, like, critiquing Proudhon for. And it's, like, the same thing. <laughs> where, like, the, the critique of, like, interest-bearing capital, like, masquerades as socialism. That's just, like, that's, like, that's better, like, to the T. It, it is funny to see people, like, try and, and, like, run this playbook, like, now. Especially in the United States, where it's, like, we got to stop these globalists Meanwhile, like every right. American corporation is like, we're the globe, like this, that's America is the yeah, global. Who's globalizing. But, yeah. but it, it's also funny to see, like, I remember when, like, uh, when this podcast first started, I think a lot of us were freaked out by, like, the, the sort of neo-reaction, like the neo-right and all those guys. And, right. you know, yeah, maybe a lot of those guys have developed, like, more, like, mainstream positions that, that they had previously. But I think it's, oh, time has kind of shown the limitations of that strategy. Not only in that they really don't have, like, any kind of, like, aristocratic class or whatever to ally themselves with, mm. but also the fact that people just aren't buying what they're selling, right? You know, you could say there's no social base for socialism in the United States. There's really no social base basis for any of that shit. And everybody who has tried to sort of, like, rationalize Trumpism into something, some kind of, like, coherent ideology and and, and class strategy has just... It's hard. Yeah, it's literally it, hard. <laughs> yeah, no, like, it just yeah. nobody cares. There's just nobody there for it. Right. Yeah, but let's not forget that, like, Haas, he... I only... I knew from like people who like remembered when before he was known as Haas that he was kind of like an sort of already kind of unhinged kind of poster on the uh, old like leftist forums. Rap and he, he, yeah, he used like, so, yeah, he used to like be some sort of like Bukharanite who was like, who had like a profile uh, picture of like Felix uh, Zerzinski and was like, wow. yeah, like, yeah, 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 it was like, like, this, yeah, I, I, absolutely like hated the czar and was like 
and then he turned to whatever he is today and apparently his one of his um on his path there was uh he had uh, apparently a neo calcius face too before like just turning into like a weird like esoteric stalinist nationalist many such cases <laughs> i will say this i feel like it's also like a good i mean he was already crazy but i also feel like leftists shouldn't probably shouldn't stream you know the the only, you, unless, yeah yeah Unless, unless you are able to do it in a way where mm-hmm. you're just like a general entertainer mm-hmm. and he talks about politics yeah. sometimes, like it's it, yeah. it never it never seems to go well. Like having having to sit with like a chat for eight hours a day, like it, it many brains have been broken. Yeah, and if your brain and if your brain doesn't break, it's because you're kind of like a sock them, basically. I guess. Yeah. We're we're like you. You're you're not gonna fall for like the. The usual like far right rabbit holes, but also you're not going to buy into like actual socialism. You just think that like you can do things better. Yeah, but it doesn't go that 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 far. So just stick to like NPC TikTok and like you know cam work and you know <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Like yeah, that's all like acceptable levels of bourgeois degeneracy and like yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it is kind of true. Like once you put politics in the mix. It hits the same incentive web, and it's just the results are way worse. Like if you do it with your music, maybe your music gets a, you know, you speed up your vocals and you start doing like funny time signatures. I don't, I don't know. Like if you get all contrarian about your music or about whatever, it's it doesn't. Does, who cares? Like who cares? But yeah, <laughs> don't. So yeah, don't stream about politics if you can help it. I know this for some people, they got to do it. And, uh, you know, just watch those people, make sure they have people. Even worse is when they actually try to debate with, like, people like Hawes and just being like, oh, wow, this guy, this guy is, like, batshit crazy. Let's just, like, keep trying to talk to him. It's like, oh. Well, did you realize that you're dealing with, you know, like, the apex of this incentive structure and you actually have to be this crazy to ride? Don't you know what you're, you know, these, I don't know. I yeah. feel a great kinship with the delusions they share because I recognize myself and, you know, younger version of myself and <laughs> their, and their appeal to reason to someone who already has their instrumental reason worked out, gamed out, like in a quite iterated way. And it's like, sorry, you're not being rational on the right level. You know, you're trying to yeah. be rational with your mind and your soul you just got to be rational with your like psychic political butthole, you know, like your, your most paranoid, yeah. like game theory life. Like I that's mean, yeah. the way like that these people are already rational. And by being debate people and thinking that we can like use formal logic or rhetoric, like, you know, the kind of like, pragmatics that lawyers use, like um, we, we really don't understand reason as, as they do in the society. Well, it's also I mean, it's also just like basic rhetoric. Like you don't win. Like this 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 is why like Socrates hated like this stuff because like you don't win yeah. an argument like that through rhetoric or through logic. You win it by making the other person look like an asshole, right? right? Mm-hmm. And like, how the fuck are you supposed to like argue with someone who like every couple of days has like a huge like screed about like about like Heidegger being like essential to like understanding like the world. And it's like, Oh, well, this is, this is, this is just like some esoteric, like take on like Strasserism or like, mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's more some 
Ernst Younger type shit. Anyways. <sighs> Hasn't this all been fun? They say mm-hmm. the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I'm still kind of in shock by how reactionary things got. But, you mm-hmm. know, it's not like I didn't hear from some people it could go that way. But also, I don't know. I think hearing so much about, you know, all oh, the socialists are just Bernie bros. Every Leninist is Hitler. Like, you know, after a while, you just get contrarian. You're willing to just entertain the other stuff. But your, your enemies are, are not always right, honestly. There's not. You don't have to. You don't have to totally flip. You don't have to jump ship. One one needs to step back and take stock. Um, Marx is helpful for that kind of, because of the, for the things that Marxists never agree with Marx on. Marx is helpful for that, because like you might not actually get like the socialist loop for why that doesn't, why Marx's positions don't prevail. What you do get is. Like a, a decent, like, I guess, like analytical primer for why why Marx thinks there's a mistake being made. Mm. Mar- Marx is usually, you know, unless he's talking about someone that he agrees with, like 96%, he's usually pretty good about animating why someone might think this, you know, like, um, but I don't think he really feels the need to do this here. Rereading a little bit more about like you know the SPD and looking at this stuff like in, in with, under a microscope, a lot of this started I think in part because of like CBGB, particularly like Lars Lee's push to recontextualize Leninism within the tradition of social democracy. I think that was actually kind of a necessary corrective, but I think that it is clear how much of all this stuff, both bad and good, basically started within the SPD. And I still think mm-hmm. there is like a lot to um, a lot to excavate here in order to understand like the Marxist tradition in the 20th century was. Um, and so, yeah, I think that I do think that this is like a, you know, looking at here is sort of like what went wrong, uh, but also maybe like some of what was right and worth learning from in a positive way. I think, you know, this is like a good text to sort of, to analyze that through. Uh, although I would, I would add the, uh, the asterisk that, you know, people are already situating Leninism in that tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of people, people looked at the, Kautsky the, like, you know, like he was because he was the yeah. guy that Lenin was mad at, basically. You no, know? no, you're yeah. right. But it's, but, it's all, but it's only Social Democrats and the, you know, Leninists that accept this big split. It's the, the people that are against both of these forms, like uh, Gilles Duvet, you know, already knew this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I already, already said as much and already, you know, connected the fucking obvious dots. And they yes. are obvious. It's kind of funny that, like, when you, you know, a text by Dave does, like, um, he sort of, like, anticipates the Neo-Kalski thing, but he takes a, he takes the opposite conclusion from that. But he also, well, it's, it's not just Dave because you could get this out of the Dutch-German left, where they did, like, draw attention to the fact that, you know, the Bolsheviks were uh, elaborating and radicalizing what they got from the second international Mm. and they kind of like realize a sort of like reformist dead end and then they have to but they they, in like realizing the reformist dead end they did not actually give up on uh many of the fundamentals yeah I, i think probably the way that this really ends up expressing itself within neo kautskyism or whatever is that this is a long-term Dutch-German left position that ends up being imprinted on communization 
And so-called neo-Kautskyism, as we know it on the internet today, is an inversion of the of the communization, you know, Dutch German view. That like, well, they're descriptively right, but I don't know. There's got to be some good, you know, some of these institutions and some of this uh, representative thought has to be defensible. Let's say you got neo-Kautskyism. Mm-hmm. Like even, and to this day, I'm still sympathetic to the way that uh, labor unions can be representative institutions. But yeah, all the rest got kind of whittled away by you know, facts and logic. Well, I think, yeah, I think, I think that inversion comes from the fact that so much of the communization stuff seemed to be like, seem to default to a kind of spontaneism that can also be either one, like amount to nothing or two, like be incredibly dangerous in its own way. Um, so I, I, under, I understand that impulse, but I think that to sit, you know, to simply like valorize like this approach and be like, well, actually it was fine. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that, uh, you know, digging into all this stuff, like, taught me is I look at, like, oh, the, for example, like, the condition of, like, the Erfurt program and just how it was, like, oh, here's a Marxist program after the, like, it meant to replace the more Lasallian uh, program that the the party had during, you know, its its founding, but also during the anti-socialist laws. It's kind of misleading, and it's interesting that like Marx kind of anticipates that in the, you know his letter to Brack, where he's like, "Must step the real movement is worth a dozen programs." If I remember correctly, what he says, because when you look at the Erfurt program in time, and then you look at what happens immediately after, like the, the revisionism stuff pops up immediately because it's related to the fact that you know the anti-socialist laws have been uh, have not been renewed. And so the, the the program kind of like whatever like the Marxist um, inclinations or sort of verbiage in there, the rank the rank and file did not suddenly overnight become less Lasallian <laughs> because like right. the the party program is now uh, coded in the, in Marxist verbiage and yeah and if you look at like the sort of like popular literature that like the rank and file would get would get e- even after that. Uh, it was mostly Lasallian arguments, but like reformulated and Marxist verbiage, basically. <laughs> and Kautsky, and, and Kautsky, you know, I, I think I brought up the quote where he, and I think in his memoir, he basically admits that like at the Gotha Unity, like both of the, both of the factions, the Eisenachers and the Lasallians, well, it's misleading because both of them were operating on sort of like Lasallian assumptions or what they, what they thought Marxism was that they got from Lasalle without him, without Lasalle saying that it was, he got that stuff from Marx and he kind of like vulgarized it. Three quote, the emancipation of labor demands the elevation of the instruments of labor to the common stock of society and the cooperative regulation of the total labor with a fair distribution of the proceeds of labor. Quote, elevation of the instruments of labor to the common stock ought obviously to read their quote, transformation into the common stock. But this only in passing. What are the proceeds of labor, the product of labor or its value? And in the latter case, is it the total value of the product or only that part of the value that labor has added anew to the value of the means of production being consumed. 
proceeds of labor is a loose notion that LaSalle has put in the place of definite economic conceptions. What is a fair distribution? Do not the bourgeois assert that the present day distribution is fair? And is it not in fact the only fair distribution on the basis of the present day mode of production? Are economic relations regulated by legal concepts or do not on the contrary, legal relations arise out of economic ones? Don't the socialist sectarians also have the most varied notions about fair distribution? To understand what is implied in this connection by the phrase fair distribution, we must take the first paragraph and this one together. The latter presupposes a society wherein, quote, the instruments of labor are common property and the total labor is cooperatively regulated. And from the first paragraph, we learn that, quote, the proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. Quote, to all members of society, to those who do not work as well. What remains then of the, quote, undiminished proceeds of labor? Only to those members of society who work, what remains then of the equal right of all members of society? But all members of society and equal right are obviously mere phrases. The kernel consists in this, that in this communist society, every worker must receive the undiminished Lasallian proceeds of labor. Let us take first of all the words proceeds of labor in the sense of product of labor. Then the cooperative proceeds of labor are the total social product. From this must now be deducted. First, cover for replacement of the means of production used up. Second, additional portion for expansion of production. Third, reserve or insurance funds to provide against accidents, dislocations caused by natural calamities, etc. These deductions from the undiminished proceeds of labor are an economic necessity and their magnitude is to be determined according to available means and forces and partly by computation of probabilities, but they're in no way calculable by principles of justice. The basic objection to the Lasallian concept of, you know, undiminished proceeds of labor translated into total social product. There's a bunch of economic necessities that Marx doesn't see clearing up anytime soon. And I, I do point out that the second is additional portion for expansion of production. Like Marx does believe in growth in, in a way that is. Yeah. But in that, like, forever. yeah, the, yeah, the, the being the growth that, you know, for example, uh, you know, it's more like dictated by needs like, Oh, we, we, mm -hmm. we it's more about how to, how to put it. He has a qualitative notion of growth. That is yeah. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, it makes more stuff. It's a more, you know, unit of output for blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Having a theory on this is also just useful to answer, you know, like the sort of, again, like the, what he mentions, like the immediate reaction of, you know, anybody when you question like the system. Like you even see this a lot of times now where people talk about like, oh, these people are on strike. Like um, they want more of the more of the uh, profits, but will the strikers, will they share in the losses when there's losses? You know, um, you, yeah, need, this, you need to have an answer for that stuff. Yeah. And for like, for, for Marx, it kind of, not only does it make sense to have like, you know, undiminished proceeds of labor, but like for what, 
for what he thinks that communism is, like the proceeds of labor is all there really is. And that like the whole society is basically labor being traded for for for, for labor in that it, it kind of like doesn't make sense because since everything would be kind of like labor being exchanged for labor, the undiminished part doesn't make sense because the conditions for la- for for labor to be done in the first place that's absorbed in a sort of production system that would make sense right this would be accounted for and perhaps like more to the point like there's no like magical spiriting away where you just like get more labor from all the labor and because you have these economic necessities so it's already impossible but to actually return to everyone exactly what they put in like, yeah. to, to, and to get like, and for them to get exactly what they made. Yeah. It's a very like vulgar, like equality, but as we're going to see, you know, a little bit, bit later on, the people have like different abilities. Mm-hmm. So already there having undiminished, right. Would assert an inequality, like asserts that kind of inequality depends on like your ability to be, to, to labor. Yeah, even though Marx is talking, you know, he's not talking as an egalitarian or as someone concerned with justice or fairness. But if you are of this persuasion, not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You will still find a lot that Marx has to say very interesting, especially coming yeah. up. And, and the point of like having all this, you know, all the labor like kind of like pool together and manage like this is, you know, the aggregate effect of being able to it shouldn't matter if you're you you can't like um labor to do like sort of like quote unquote average yeah let me read let me read this uh this next this next couple paragraphs to drive this point home um then we could talk about it there remains the other part of the total product intended to serve as means of consumption Before this is divided among the individuals, there has to be deducted again from it. First, the general cost of administration not belonging directly to production. This part will, from the outset, be very considerably restricted in comparison with present-day society, and Hmm. it diminishes in proportion as the new society develops. Second, that which is intended for common satisfaction of needs such as schools, health services, etc. From the outset, this part grows considerably in comparison with present-day society, and it grows in proportion as the new society develops. Third, funds for those unable to work, etc. In short, for what is included under so-called official poor relief today. Um, Sometimes Marx is very useful for reactionaries. Marx can help you come up with this really cool, dialectical, elaborate way of making a right-wing point with left-wing rhetoric. And it sucks, mm-hmm. right? It's one of the things that I think uh, Marx is perversely beloved for. But there's a certain kind of, you know, anti-tax libertarian kind of view that you could never really do the platypus or spiked thing and try to, I mean, you, of course you can because everything is permitted, but, but you know, if, if you're, 
if you're actually like taking the tax, you know, very seriously, you, you really can't do this at all here. Um, because you, like, you know, you can't do the, you know, yeah, you know, in communism, there won't be taxes. You know, I mean, you could do like a, you could do like a, a nominalistic determinism of like, well, it won't be taxes because it's not money, you know, mm -hmm. but you could do that kind of bullshit. But the basic point is that, yeah, it, there's going to be a deduction for, you know, society. Yeah. And there's going to be one. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, uh, those deductions are so, um, like, you know, the common satisfaction of needs, right? Um, to, man to maintain that and not have it, like, put, you know, behind, like, some sort of, like, commodification. You, you still need to be able to, um, you know, to um, sort of, like, cultivate a sort of, you know, general public space or in public services. And this yeah. can't, like, this This can't be done if, like, everybody is, like, all right, we're, everybody's getting their equal, work is getting, like, exactly what they put in, as in, like, the specific quantum of labor. Yeah, there's welfare. Right. Mm -hmm. And this works very elegantly with the uh, fundamental principles of communist production, you know, Dutch German vision of communism, where administrative costs are down because, you know, everyone's managing shit, basically. And the, the like, but public expenditure balloons because mm -hmm. the whole point is to, that the whole society will eventually be kind of like, you just don't have to account for labor. You, you, you can more or less just like have this as free of, of the, at the point of provision with, you know, people putting in their hours and it doesn't fucking matter. Like, you don't have to worry about that. Like, now, of course, that's a bit of a, a very optimistic version of it, but it just better reflects what's, you know, whenever Marx touches on communism, it's just a lot more like what Marx seems to think communism is going to be like. Not to, you know, just be reading, still reading Marxism back into Marx, right? But uh, I don't know. Can't help it. Bad habit. Only now do we come to the distribution that the program under the Stalin influence alone has in view with its narrow fashion, namely to that part of the means of consumption that is divided among individual producers of the cooperative society. Again, a notion shaft. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So that's the word he's using for cooperative society. Cool. Thank you, translation. The undiminished proceeds of labor have already unnoticeably become converted into the diminished proceeds. Although what the producer is deprived of in his capacity as a private individual benefits him directly or indirectly in his capacity as a member of society. Just as the phrase concerning the undiminished proceeds of labor has disappeared, so now does the phrase proceeds of labor disappear altogether. Within a cooperatively organized society based on common ownership of the means of production, the producers do not exchange their products. Just as little does the labor expended on the products appear here as the value of these products, as a material quality possessed by them. Since now, in contrast to capitalist society, individual labor no longer exists in an indirect fashion, but directly as a component part of total labor. 
the phrase proceeds of labor, objectionable, also today on account of its ambiguity, thus loses all meaning. Here we are dealing with a communist society, not as it has developed on its own foundations, but on the contrary, just as it emerges from capitalist society, which is thus in every respect, economically, morally, and intellectually, still stamped with the birthmarks of the old society from whose womb it emerges. If this was classic Swampside, I think we would have put an air horn here. <laughs> yeah, we, I, yeah, I could... I could... On the, I, I put sound effects in on the last one, so we can put that we can put that in there. Yeah, yeah, um, we, can, we just drop it in here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was gonna say it's in some ways like this, you know, at least in this respect, at some level, crisis averted because like you know the places where there was like social democracy, they at least managed like a halfway decent welfare state. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't yeah, they like, like you, they didn't you know, like like eliminate universal health care or like uh, you know the minimum wage or like I don't know. Or just like straight up be like, yeah, we could just pay people differently. You know, Marx hated equality, you know, like, yeah, in this respect, some of those countries, not, yeah, not as bad as the more, you know, revolutionary red flag type of regime. Yeah, it wasn't just like a bunch of factory workers, like walking around with fat stacks, like I'm the big man of the neighborhood. I got the factory job. You know what I mean? Like. President of the Union, I'm so proud of you, homie. This is your chance to get a fair shake for the working man. And make lifelong connections to the world of organized crime. Mmm, organized crime. Don Homer, I have baked a special donut just for you. Mmm, grazie. Don Homer, my son, he has a trouble with the... Uh... Eh, 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 eh. Molto bene. Yeah, take yeah. that, cripples. Undiminished. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, here, um, it's important. Um, in the passage we, we just read, people would often very much, like, try to argue that because, um, depending on the translation... Uh, that Marx is basically arguing that like value exists in the lo the lower phase, when uh, that's re that's really not the case. Okay, so Especially... this is the paragraph that like motivates the entire retranslation. <laughs> uh, not exactly. Well, I think in the introductory essay they kind of grill and notes for basically basically being crypto stock. <laughs> they kind of <laughs> smuggle like a lot of like uh, how do I put this? academically respectable uh, readings of Marx in which are, you know, God, up to like, I don't know, up to just like, you know, a decade or so ago, or like invariably wrong or distorted because of the legacies of all the scholars that went into the academy and encoded their various like political ideologies into the readings of Marx. Like, and so they would be wrong about stuff Marx is clear about with kind of shocking regularity, considering, you know, considering these people read Marx, it's not like they don't. But I guess if your goal is to excoriate the Marxists more than it is to just absolve Marx and protect him from all your criticism, then I, I can see how it happened. It's still always shocking, though, because it's shit I know, and I'm not like in a reading, like reading group journal. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I guess maybe it's a translation, but it's very hard to take that interpretation here. Like, uh... even later on, like Mark's, uh, especially this passage. Um, if if you read like chapter one of uh, of, of Capital, there's some like discussions that are very like are quite related to what he's talking about here that would clear it up. He even does the same thing later on where he's going to say that like only for like um, the sake of like a parallel to commodity production. And he, he does that in the chapter one of capital two, right. where he's trying to like illustrate the fact that like when he's talking about fetishism, where he's talking about, Oh, look, every element that we found in capitalism um, separately does not make, you know, the, the actual process of uh, capital production, they don't arise out of uh, every like single um, individual um, bit that we've analyzed here, but it's sort of like when they all come together in a specific social form, that's when you get. But it's precisely um, just as, as little does the labor expended on the product appear here as the value of these products. And then he talks about, you know, social labor. The, the the point here is that like value is sort of um, it's kind of like what happen it, it's it's what happens when um, all of like these um, how to put it since you're all doing like labor like in individual like firms or even like petty uh, production and the fact like no one like you don't there's no way of even knowing right what other people are producing because you're all going to compete on like a market. And so all these private labors have to become a sort of like a social labor through the, through, through the market mechanism and through like value appearing as price. And so because, because of that, that value has a sort of um, existence that it wouldn't have if from the outset, we just had the ability to kind of like know a little bit what we're going to be, uh, do, what the society itself is going to do, how it's going to plan out, what, what what are the needs. Yeah, I kind of want to run over this paragraph again a little bit. So talking about where producers not exchanging their products, which again, this is, you know, news to the uh, mutualist socialist types. Right. But um, just as little does the labor expended on the products appear here as the value of these products as a material quality possessed by them. Since now, in contrast to capitalist society, individual labor no longer exists in an indirect fashion, but directly as a component part of total labor. And for and for that to happen, wage labor needs to be uh, done away with because the. Because the the whole cap the capital labor relation is kind of is kind of this you're rewarding uh, the the you're, you're giving back the the individual individual laborer his uh, his sort of what he's quote unquote entitled to. Yeah, so it kind of destroys the idea of well, I did this, so you know I could trade that for what you did, and it's more that we worked on all this shit together in some structural way mm -hmm. like somehow as a matter of fact you know that exchange relation has given way to more or less being on the same project 
And that's like the basis for his claim that uh, exchange doesn't exist, value is not, you know, th these pr these things do not possess value. Although I will say that he uses the word appear. I mean, at least the translator uses the word appear. Usually when I see appear in Marx, it's often mm -hmm. like, you know, he doesn't really believe in the world of appearances when it comes to social science. He's always about penetrating the, uh, the apparent for the essential. But I think he's, you know, other than that, other than that, I think it's like, this is pretty clearly saying that value does not exist here. Because mm -hmm. these things are different structurally. So, I'm just going to take a second to look at that. Although I will say, we have like another three pages of the section. I don't know if we're getting through it today. I don't <laughs> think we are. I don't think we are. Mm. And it's an important section. I, I, forgot, I forgot what we were doing. So maybe, maybe we should uh, leave off at the womb. Yeah. yeah. Leave off. Leave off where we all started. Okay. Yeah. There's a nice. There's a nice symmetry to that. Yeah. That's it for this time. Uh, if you want to get hold of us, you can email us at swapsidechats at gmail .com. If you want to support the show, you can check out our Patreon. And uh, if you've been enjoying our little playthrough of Disco Elysium on Patreon, uh, we'll soon be releasing it as audio-only episodes as well. It's not clear if that's going to be like a limited series that will be listed separately from the main stuff or not. Um, but yeah, anyway. Until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.